Welcome back to the program. We are glad you're with us. The Bill Michael Show. We continue on hour number three today talking some Brewers baseball. Wild lineup today, as a matter of fact. Wild lineup. Tyrone Taylor leading off. You got Hunter Renfro over at first. Keston Hira playing second. Uh, Joe Gray, Sal Freelich in the uh, in the outfield today. Weston Wilson over at third. You got all kinds of craziness happening out in uh, American Family Fields of Phoenix. Uh, joining us now on the hotline, Will Salmon from the Athletic, covering the Milwaukee Brewers. You can read his stuff at Will Salmon S A M M O N. A week and a day away from opening day down at Wrigley. Will, how you doing, man? What's going on? Bill, good to be on with you, man. Glad to be part of the show today. Thanks for having me. You bet. So uh, what is today's tinkering with the lineup? Is it just giving some guys at bats, giving them some looks, some different positions? What? Yeah, a combination. I, I assume of everything. I think with Hunter Renfro at first, it kind of gives them a good right-handed bat there. It just probably in case uh, they they want to load up against like a left-hander or something like that, they, they have that option down the road if they want to or at least try it out, right? It's spring training, so it doesn't hurt to kind of tinker with that. They certainly have a enough outfielders to, to do that kind of thing if everyone stays healthy with uh, Yelich, Kane, Tyrone Taylor, and uh, Renfro, and Andrew McCutcheon as well, even with the DH. Like, they have a spot there with those spot guys that they could mix around a little bit if they want to. So there's there's part of that. And also just kind of get, get some guys off their feet a little bit. Um, they had the day off on Sunday, but they played Monday, Tuesday. We've seen a lot of the regulars get a lot of at-bats early on, kind of get them ready in the condensed spring training that this is. So I don't think anything of it beyond that, um, but it does kind of give them an option down the road, particularly at first base with Renfro. Um, he's played sparingly there in the past, definitely not one of his primary positions by any means. Uh, but like I said, down the road, it doesn't hurt to kind of give him a look. My question today is, is this a prove-it year for Christian Yelich? He hurt the kneecap, and it coincided with all the accusations of sign-stealing. It coincided with the signing of a new contract. It coincided with COVID. All of that, his numbers have been down. Is this a prove-it year for Christian Yelich? Well, I think that he proved that he's, he was an MVP player two or, two or three years ago in 2018, 2019, and now we're looking at him at age, what, 30? Um, and it's like it's hard to kind of expect, or really not fair in my opinion, to expect him to be that guy anymore four years later at this point or three years later at this point. Um, I, I don't see him maybe hitting 45 home runs like he did in 2019 and putting, putting together that sort of, high-end, sort of almost an 8F war kind of MVP-type numbers, uh, particularly after the two down years. But he does have to prove to be a more than productive, more than productive player. I think last year his war was like 1.5, and that's almost that sort of replacement level. Um, and somebody like Tyrone Taylor, in a fraction of the time, posted similar numbers from a production standpoint. Again, like Yelich was dealing with the back issue, um, and so he was out for a little while. Then when he came back, he had a bout with COVID as well and was sidelined for about a week or so. So there was some start and stop there. Um, But here, like, he enters the year with no COVID-like issues um, throughout baseball. That was a weird thing to deal with the past couple of years. There's none of that. By all means, it, it sounds like he's fully healthy, back to having some fun. Um, there's really no reason why he shouldn't produce at a level that maybe we've seen a few a few years before he arrived with, with the Brewers, maybe like that 2016 season, 
where he hit 20 home runs, drove in 100 runs, um, was very, very good for the Marlins that year. I think that's probably more in line with what to expect. Um, just because, like, look, the guy's 30 years old at this point, not to say that that's old. Um, I'd, I'd definitely trade places and be 30 again. But um, just what I'm getting at is it's, he had that run that was remarkable, and he dealt with some things after that. And just to kind of grade him against that at this point may not be the most fair thing, uh, but I agree the fact that it's a proven year in the sense that they need him to be way more productive than he was in 2021 when he hit just the nine home runs and had a 250 average and the on-base percentage was high, but that was mostly because his walk rate was still around 15%. So they definitely need more power from the guy and just more productive bats. So, and again, uh, if he hits, say, 270, 275, gives you 20 home runs, I, I want to see the power numbers go back up. I, I don't necessarily need to see him hit 330, driving 100 runs, and hit 40 home runs. But what I'm looking for is just give me the power numbers that are back. I know he hit the ball in the screws a lot last year. It didn't fall. We all understand that. And eventually the the baseball gods equal things out. He did have a little bit of a run before he went back down with injury. So I understand that. But give me 275, I guess, 270. Get get close to those power numbers, maybe 20, 25 home runs if he's healthy all season long, maybe about 80 RBI. Then you're talking about the return of Christian Yelich, right? Yeah, it's just like his – his ground ball rate um, toward the end of the year was just sky high. It was like 60 or something percent, maybe even more than that in like the last month or so of the season. And, and that's just, as, and a lot of the times it was like rolling it over to the right side of the infield, um, pulling it over there. And that's just not going to work. Um, uh, particularly with the way that defenses go against him with the shift. Um, you know, it's just, he's seeing so many more, so many more shifts, now um, than he did a few years ago, and since it's still around for this year, that that could be an issue again. We, like you said, like the power numbers has to be there, and for for that to happen, he has to get the ball in the air a little bit more than he did last year. We've seen a little bit of that in spring training, um, but whether or not we did or we get it so far, wouldn't really change my opinion one way or the other because it's just spring training and it's against guys who are tinkering with pitches or minor leaguers or things of that nature. So. Not going to put much stock one way or the other into the spring, but you're right. I think we need to see at probably at least 20 or so home runs. And I mean, this lineup is built so that they have depth, but they don't really necessarily have that one guy that's going to like mash and like, you know, you could kind of count on him for the 35 home runs. They have guys like Renfro and McCutcheon who could hit 25 30, um, and they've done it before, but it's not like you could kind of just like use a magic marker and say, okay, this guy's going to hit 30 home runs or 35 home runs. Yes, they have guys who are capable of it, but my point is that they don't have that that guy, um, for lack of a better way to put it. And Yelich, of course, was supposed to be that guy when he signed the contract and performed the way he did in 2018 and 2019. Um, so I want to, by the way, we're talking with Will Salmon covering the Brewers for the athletic. You can find him on Twitter at Will Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N. So who has impressed you this spring training? Who's been kind of a couple of standouts? Give us some, uh, give us some inspirational thoughts here. Uh, Keston Hira, uh, I guess I'll, I'll be bold and start there. I, w- I worked on some stories with uh, his personal hitting coach over the winter. And one of them was just on the fact that he was toning down his leg kick and, when I heard about that, I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense because there was just too much going on with that swing. He had the, the toe tap and then the leg kick. And to have both, I mean, you have to be 
I mean, just an incredible talent to, to be able to do that and have consistency. And as good as Keston was in, in say, 2019 when he came up, um, like, it just takes a special type of person to maintain that consistency. I mean, we're talking about probably like a Hall of Fame level talent to be able to do that kind of move and to be able to post numbers year in, year out like that. So something kind of had to give there. And so he eliminates the toe tap, goes back to ju- he has just the leg kick now. And he's, he really worked on just being more selective at the plate. So far, it's looking really good. I mean, we, we see him make a lot more contact early on. And again, like last spring, I was encouraged when I saw him hit a home run or two. Um, but I, we saw a lot more swing and miss. This, this time around, we're not seeing that as, as often. We're seeing more contact, more hard contact from him. So he's a guy that, like, look, you know, if he performs well um, throughout the rest of the week, and carries that into the season, all of a sudden you have a guy um, in the mix who you know he's capable of after watching him explode onto the scene in 2019. Um, my expectations are still so far on the low end for him. He still has to prove it when it matters and when it, when the numbers count. Um, but by, certainly like he, his spring so far has lent itself to some optimism. Uh, ditto for Tyrone Taylor. He's a guy who on paper, it looks like he lost them at bats because of the addition of Andrew McCutcheon and presumably a you know, healthy Lorenzo Kane in center field. But out of all their guys in the outfield beyond Kane, he's the only one that you could really count on to play a good center field. And so he's going to see his see some time, and they're going to mix a match at DH after, after um, McCutcheon gets his, his first run there. I'm sure that either by injury or by slumps or whatever, like they'll find ways to get Tyrone Taylor into the lineup and they should. I mean, this guy just every spring and every time so far that we've seen him the past couple of years, he just continues to hit balls hard. He's a good base runner, plays good defense. So there's a lot to like there, especially if you're looking at him as like a fourth outfielder type. Um, So those are the two guys that have really impressed so far this spring um, for a team that, like I alluded to earlier, without like, some monster bats they have like one through nine a pretty decent lineup but they're going to need those guys to provide some depth and to be counted on so that they have quality one through nine as opposed to you know big bats in the middle or big bats at top like some other teams are are constructed we know that josh Hader, the back of the bullpen seems to be pretty solid give me your thoughts on devin williams coming back after the hand injury and and how he's looked brad the signing of brad boxberger obviously brand Suter. they've got some guys back there that have been there done that so give me the, the give me the thoughts on the depth of the bullpen yeah i really like what i've seen from devin williams so far this spring um the velocity is right where he wants it to be at this point he's somebody that we kind of forget because of how good the changeup is and how fun that is to watch that. The guy throws 98 miles an hour as well. And I get it, like a lot of guys throw 98 miles an hour these days, but when you have a changeup like that, um, that registers are like 80 miles an hour on the gun with that kind of movement, and you can kind of pair it with a high-octane fastball, that's what makes him so special. Um, and we've seen that, and we've also seen Devin Williams tinker with a third pitch. He threw us a little bit of a slider in the minor leagues and never really threw it in the majors, and now he's kind of tinkering with a cutter slash slider. He's gotten some good results, and that maybe could be a weapon against some left-handed bats this year. We'll wait and see if, how much he uses it, but definitely promising for him to look at a third pitch, um, similar to Josh Hader, who we've seen sort of adapt and evolve as the years have gone on while maintaining dominance. Um, beyond those two guys, like you said, they re-signed Brad Boxberger. Um, he's a guy who who's had a slow start last year in spring and actually didn't even make the opening day roster. 
I think people forget about that. Um, like, he had such a slow spring last year that he didn't make the team. Um, this year, things have been a little bit slow for him still. Um, but I bring up last year just to say I wouldn't worry about it right now because he's a veteran guy with a big presence in that bullpen, and it was a good signing because they kind of needed that stabilizing presence to bridge the gap between their great starters and the eighth and ninth inning when they can kind of get to Devin Williams and Josh Hader to shorten the game. Brad Boxberger gives them that option in addition to Brent Suter, who has also looked really crisp and who has been doing his thing as far as efficiency and getting getting out in a different way with a more of a, a slow a slow velocity fastball that kind of gets there at 90 but is really effective. Um, I want to ask you about some of the, the, the new coaching staff, obviously having a couple of, we were talking about it just before you came on the air, having hitting coaches and uh, kind of how that works, the performance behind the scenes, so to speak. How have guys accepted the change, the new coaching staff? Give me your thoughts there. Yeah, you know, it's actually kind of three coaches because they also have like Matt Erickson in like a hybrid sort of like infield uh, slash assistant hitting coach role. So in addition to Connor Dawson from the Mariners and Ozzie Timmons from the Rays, they also have Matt Erickson up from up from Appleton, uh, where he was a manager for a long time, as you know. So, like, they have those three guys there. And the thought process behind it is, hey, much like pitching, we need to put more resources into hitting development. And, like, that's pretty obvious to say out loud, maybe. But teams have just now kind of started doing this. We saw this with the Giants the last couple of years. And if you want to model your team after any other organization, perhaps the Giants are a good one to do that with, considering they won 106 games or whatever it was last year uh, with mostly veteran bats who had good seasons and not like the biggest of names anymore either. So they're a good team to model after. And with the Brewers, like we've seen this really across their organization where they have more coaches dedicated to hitters. And the idea is like, look, there's how many guys that, how many position players are they going to carry on this roster of like 26 or 28, 14 or so. So the idea is to kind of dedicate a coach to a handful of each guys and kind of give them the proper time um, as far as analyzing numbers, um, understanding the best approach on a given day, and just allocating that time and, and those resources, like I said, to the specific batter, kind of helping him along. In theory, it all sounds great. We'll see it in practice. So far, because it's spring and there hasn't been any sort of issues, I guess like it's not like they they they've got up against it and have struggled. It's spring training and they've looked pretty good um, for that matter. We haven't really heard anything negative about it. Um, and these guys are reputable people. I mean, Matt Irishman's been around the organization for a long time, um, but Ozzy Timmons has been a baseball coach. He's kind of an old school guy. Uh, he's been a baseball coach for a long time, and or at least he was with the Rays organization. And then Dawson is more of like your sort of new school, for lack of a better way to put it, who's mm-hmm. more into the numbers and that kind of thing, exit velocity. So by all means, it sounds like a really good mesh, and that's the idea to kind of like go across the board and to connect with as many different players as possible. The uh, real quick, the catching, uh, the catching battery. Obviously, Narvaez is the main guy. Uh, give me a, your thoughts on Severino. He's a good bat. Uh, they're going to have to work with him defensively. Uh, it's going to take a lot of effort because the spring he didn't have enough time with the lockout to really like learn the pitching staff and really learn the coaching staff. But they have a really good reputation with it. We saw what happened with Omar, Omar Narvaez. He entered the organization as a really bad defender. And now he's one of the better defenders in baseball. So it's going to take some time. But 
hey, at least they got a bat here, and that's definitely needed um, with Pedro Severino. That's one thing that we've learned is that he could certainly hit. So while the defense may need some time, they'll definitely reap the, re- reap the rewards of having another offensive threat in their lineup when he plays. So real quick before I let you go, uh, I wanted to ask you about first base and Rowdy Telez. Obviously, he's going to be your first baseman. But how how much do you think they either, one, work other guys into that position, or two, if they're really close at the trade deadline, do they go out and try to find themselves a consistent everyday first baseman with Pop? Yeah, I think it, I think that's a good question. That will depend, I guess, on how Telez fares a lot of it, right? Because he's a guy who I, I honestly have always liked because he hits the ball really hard. He's cut down on his strikeouts. He's walking more, and he's, he's maintained that power. So I like him a lot. Um, it's just he's never really gotten the opportunity to play every single day since he came up through the Blue Jays system. Um, even last year, he got hurt uh, a little bit when they did give him that job at the Brewers, and he was kind of off and on at first with Eduardo Escobar down, down the stretch. Um, so this year, they, they may try him a little bit more against left-handed pitching. He's a left-handed batter, and usually they play the matchups there. Um, but they may give him a shot because his numbers versus lefties last year throughout his career are, are actually pretty solid. Like, there's not a huge drop-off between the two. And so it would, I wouldn't mind seeing him there. Um, they could, of course, give more playing time to Keston Hero, assuming he makes the team, and they could put him at first base instead against select lefties. Um, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, but as far as, like, acquiring somebody different at the deadline or before the deadline, that would largely depend, I assume, on how Telez performs because if he hits the ground – and, and starts hitting the ball and shows some more promise uh, and builds off what he showed last year at a small sample size, then they probably don't need to address much there at first because he, he could be he could end up being a quality bat. Just it's one of those things that they need time to kind of get more information on him. Will, great stuff as always, man. I appreciate it. We'll touch base again real soon and then uh, maybe get you on come opening day as well, okay? Yeah, of course, Bill. Thanks for having me on. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. There you go. Will Salmon covering the Brewers for The Athletic. You can find him on Twitter at Will Salmon, S-A-M-M-O-N, at Will Salmon. And he covers, like I said, the Brewers for The Athletic. Really, really good stuff. Some in-depth stuff. Is it a prove-it year? Is it a prove-it year for Christian Yelich? Or do you buy into what he said that, hey, that that Christian Yelich from four year, three, four years ago, uh, you can't expect that anymore? Should that be the truth? Should we not expect that anymore? Stay tuned. We got a lot more of the Bill Michael Show coming up next. Covering Wisconsin sports like a blanket. This is the Bill Michael Show on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. Bucks basketball here at the top of the hour. Welcome back to the program, the Bill Michael Show. We are glad you are with us today as the Bucks get a big win last night against the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. Bucks knocking them off. Giannis coming up with a big defensive play, dropping 40 on them last night as well. He turned it on when they needed to, and uh, the Milwaukee Bucks now have the tiebreaker against the 76ers. This portion of the program brought to you by our friends at J&L Tire Service. Get a hold of Lyle and the whole gang out there uh, just north of 94 in Johnson Creek and in Watertown. Go to jandltire.com. Whether you're a soccer mom, a salesman over the road, maybe you're just a community driver or an over-the-road driver with a big rig, they can handle it all. Go to jandltire.com. Jim Ozarski joining us on the line, the Journal Sentinel. Jimmy, how you been, buddy? I am. I'm good, Bill. 
So how big a win was it last night for the Bucs? Uh, it was, look, I, I think when you're talking about defending champions, you're sort of sort of beyond the, the quote-unquote statement game, if you will. But the fact that they were able to come back from a late deficit um, against the potential MVP candidate at home, or I guess for the Bucks on the road, um, and play really championship-level defense for what the, the final half of the fourth quarter, um, that had to be encouraging and, you know, a marker that this team is, is really kind of hitting its stride going into the playoffs. The uh, the Bucks have the toughest schedule out of anybody in the East going down the stretch. Is there, as you start to kind of look at some of what the preview matchups might be for the Milwaukee Bucks, is there a preference uh, to get the number one, number two, number three seed, or does it really matter at this point? No, I think I think for them, well, coming out of the break, <laughs> Mike Boonholzer admitted grudgingly that you know they were probably too close to that play-in tournament. I mean, remember, Bill, after they went 500 in January and were only a game or two out of that seven spot, um, and, and so they all admitted that that <laughs> was not where they needed to be. So what? What, what have they done since? They, they've ripped off what 10 or 13 or something to that effect, and, and so now they're clear of that safely into the top four, which means they're going to get one home home playoff series. I think that's they're fine with that. I think when you win a championship as the three seed come from 0-2 down on the two, the, the two series you, you didn't have home court for, um, nothing like that really phases them. I, I don't think they fear, if that's the right word, any team in the East, uh, uh, including the one they're playing tomorrow in Brooklyn in a playoff series. So no, I, I think it, it's about you know, getting home court to the best that they can, that they're healthy. If that leads them to the one, I think they're fine. If that leads them to the four, I think they're fine. The uh, the fact that you've got all three back and you've got Chris Middleton, uh, Drew Holiday, and Giannis all playing together for the first time in a long time. Uh, and I said this uh, about last season, too. It's not about the regular season for this team. It was about the chemistry. It's about kind of being Budenholz or the kind of the mad scientist and figuring out rotations, getting guys back, getting them healthy. And about the last six, seven, eight games, put it all together and then go on your run. Now you got Lopez back, and he can shoot from the outside. And just that first game that I saw him at the Pfizer Forum, the way he just changed the Bulls' offense because of his mere presence, the fact that they've got everybody back on the floor together, this is now Budenholzer's time to kind of feel it out, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, I mentioned the Bulls game. I think he, he kind of – moved around and, and played really well on that West coast trip, you know, Utah, Sacramento. But I, I think last night was really uh, probably a reminder for basketball observers, maybe Bucks fans, how important he is to their defense. I mean, look, Bill, Joel Embiid went one for six in the first quarter. Um, and that was because of Brooke Lopez. And then late in the game, there's Brooke Lopez switching out on the James Harden and winning time and contesting a three where, where Harden barely, I mean, we know it set up Giannis's block, but Harden barely hit anything on that shot because Brooke Lopez was able and healthy enough to do that. Um, he's a big deal. He probably didn't change any betting lines in Vegas right. or any of that, any of that kind of thing. But I, I think for the box in that locker room, 
the fact that he came back, A, but now his back and is playing at a healthy level. His legs, he looks quick. He looks, I think he, he told me, Bill, he gained some weight during his rehab just just by the nature of, of what he had to do. But he said it was good weight. I mean, he looks good. Um, you know, that, that's a big deal for them and, and how they feel they can continue and, and maybe truly defend this title with another run to the finals. How big of a game is it? And then, like you said, you know, you're the defending champ. You got statement games and then there's statement games. But on the road against Brooklyn coming up tomorrow night, um, how big of a game would this be? And then, then taking it a step further now that Kyrie is back and consistently back, how bi- how much of a pain could Brooklyn be sitting there so low right now in the standings and the seedings for a top team in the East? Yeah, so I think this game means far more to the Brooklyn Nets than the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, not that they don't want to win and they're going to, you know, any of that, but the, the Nets are barely hanging on to this playoff play in scenario. I mean, they, they lose two. Look, they, they barely beat the Detroit Pistons last night and the Pistons are playing some really good ball, but they barely beat the Pistons. Let's be real. Um, and so for the Nets, if they were to beat the Bucks, it, it would sort of feed into the, uh-oh, you know, Kyrie and, and Durant, because let's face it, those two are, are going to have to be superb. Um, whereas I think the, for the Bucks, they would just say, all right, you know, they got us tonight. <laughs> Could they do that four times in a two-week period? I, I don't think the Bucks would really fear that as we spin it forward. So, it means tomorrow means more for Brooklyn. Now, Bill, to your, to your second point of, of the Nets, this is, I, I'm interested about this because, look, the, the Nets, everyone just sort of assumes that they're going to get out of the play-in tournament. I, so if, if that's the assumption, I'm going to assume Cleveland's healthy, Bill, um, and that means they've got three seven-footers. I don't know that the, the Nets can handle that. I don't mm-hmm. know. We, we just watched the Nets lose at home to Charlotte. You mean to tell me that Trey in a one game scenario with that variant that Trey Young couldn't score forty five, or that the, the the Hornets couldn't do what they did against? So um, I'm not saying the Brooklyn Nets won't get out of the play in, but they they might not. Right. Any one of those three teams can beat them because they can't play defense. <laughs> Let alone okay, so now they got to go to Miami or Philly or the or Milwaukee. I don't know, Bill. I, I like I get it. Kyrie and, and, and Kevin Durant are are tremendous individual talents. But if you're gonna tell me they need to score ninety points a night for the Nets to win, I'm gonna lean more with the better overall teams who are probably gonna drop one thirty five on them. <laughs> right? right? I mean it's that's my feeling on that. Um, obviously there's only what, uh, seven games, I think something like that left in, in the regular season. And do they start to, with the, the, the seating being what it is at any point, do they start to look towards quote load management or do they say, you know what, we're going to continue to fight for, to, to try to get one one or two when it comes to the seating in the Eastern conference. You know, I think they've struck that balance already, Bill. Like you mentioned it with the big three. Look, Giannis missed a couple of games with knee soreness. Chris Middleton with wrist. Drew Holiday with an ankle. Um, I, I mean, those are real things. Like, we know Giannis' knees. We watched Chris Middleton take that fall in Minneapolis. 
Drew Holiday has missed a bunch of games on two different occasions with that ankle. I think unlike last year, though, uh, where Mike Budenholzer elected on several occasions to just sit all three of those guys, um, he has staggered that because the East is so tight. Now, look, Middleton missed the Bulls game. That's a big deal. If it was a playoff game, was could he have played? Probably. I don't know. Look, we're talking about this Brooklyn game. They play the Clippers on a back-to-back at the end of this week, Bill, right? Um, mm-hmm. They've got one more back-to-back where it's that Boston game you mentioned. They go to Detroit. I, I mean, it would make sense to me if there's some sort <laughs> if there's some soreness for some guys. And maybe not just the big three, but Grayson Allen or Pat Connaughton or well, whomever. Um, so I can see, but but that doesn't mean all the other guys would play and they try to win. So I think that's the balance they're striking this year, Bill, is still finding rotations, still getting chemistry, but also finding those kind of key spots to give, you know, the, the top guys at least a night off their feet. I think they're trying to find do both. And, and I think so far, at least these last couple of weeks, right, it, it appears to be working. I'm talking with uh, Jim Ozarski, uh, covering the Milwaukee Bucks for the Journal Sentinel. Is the team to beat overall in the NBA, the Phoenix Suns, or do you think the Bucks still hold that top spot? Uh, yeah, I, I'm a guy who's who's you're you're the champ until you're not. Um, you know, so I, I have a hard time, you know, just dismissing what Milwaukee's doing, especially now that they're whole. But I, I also was there to watch the Suns you know, just handle them in Phoenix. Now, it was different. Brooke didn't play. Serge was just traded for. It was a short roster. Um, obviously, the Bucks handled business at home. Um, but there was no Chris Paul or Devin Booker. So mm-hmm. right. I, I'm going to kind of lean on that, that Phoenix game because, I, you know, Connaughton didn't break his hand until late in that game. It was sort of out of, out of pocket. So, yeah, I, I think Phoenix is – the best team. I, I, if someone were to tell me they're the the favorite, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't argue with that, but I think Milwaukee is, is showing right now, Bill, as we've said with Brooke Lopez, uh, they are the best team in the East, <laughs> but by far. And right. if that means that they get to do run it back with Phoenix, I mean, who wouldn't want to see that again? Um, the other aspect of this is golden state when they get Steph back. Now, I don't know. I mean, obviously you can just expect Steph to be Steph, but when Golden State, uh, you know, gets Steph back, obviously the Memphis Grizzlies have played extremely well. John Moran has been such a pleasure and so much fun to watch this season. So other than Phoenix, is it one of those two? Or do you look at, say, like Dallas and say Dallas has got all the capability in the world to be a, be a team that uh, gets out of the West? Who do you think gets out of the West other than Phoenix? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the, the, the West is far more top-heavy you know, than, than the East, um, which is deeper. I, I, I mean, it's those three. I, I want to put Memphis third <laughs> largely because they're, they're new. I, I don't know if they can win three series um, and, and sort of handle all of that. Maybe they can. Maybe this is their time, you know, um, and they've arrived way, way early. And if that's the case, man, they are a scary team when they're healthy. Um, they have given the Bucks all Milwaukee can handle. That is not a great matchup <laughs> for the Milwaukee mm-hmm. team. Um, Golden, but yeah, but I'm going to lean on, yes, Phoenix, because they've been there. I think they're a better team than last year. Golden State, 
clearly has the pedigree. They have that their big three is, is a championship team, a championship coach. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's it's a top heavy conference, Bill. I, I wouldn't be shocked. You know, if you were to say it's going to be, you know, any of those three, I would say that would, I would say that would make sense. <laughs> who's your, uh, who's your uh, MVP voting? Uh, I, you know, I don't know if I have a vote this year, Bill. I, I, we, we don't get that until the end of the season, but, um, you know, I did participate in, I, I, I'm transparent with everyone um, in the ESPN straw poll at the time that I, I participated. I did have Nikola Jokic number one at that moment um, and Giannis number two. I, I had Giannis won at various points this year in those polls. Um, I know Bucks fans are screaming, what do you, you know, what do you mean? I, I, I think right. the, the fact that Jokic um, is doing what he's doing with a team where he's basically by himself. I think that's the overriding thing. If, if I could crawl into the minds of voters, Bill, it's that there's no, there's no Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, Pat Connaughton, like those guys. I mean, I, can anyone name another nugget right now that would even right. play for anybody else? So I think, but it's going to be close. I mean, Giannis, if he wins the scoring title, Bill, I think he's in the defensive player of the year conversation. He is putting together a tremendous finish here. And, and it, it mm-hmm. should be, a, to me, should be a closer vote, though, than that straw poll maybe indicated nationally. The uh, the other thought is Joel Embiid in the season that he has had is he still second to Jokic or do you think that uh, East Coast wise he will get the nod? It's uh, interesting. Um, no, I, I think I mean look Jokic and and or Embiid excuse me was sort of building momentum and I know voters hate to, to or maybe fans hate to hear it. I hate saying that I don't vote that way personally. Um, but I think the fact that Embiid was second last year, he's having a good season. Now, we'll see. I mean, I, look, if, if Philadelphia sort of tumbles to the fore, I don't know what that does for his candidacy. He's, he's playing very, very well. Um, but when you have two historic – look, Nikola Jokic, and, and those three guys are having historic seasons. Bill, take – any one of them individually and put them in any other year and they are far and away the MVP. So I, I, I think that Bucks fans especially need to kind of try to recognize that, that like these guys are having just, they are having MVP season. They are without mm-hmm. a doubt. Right. Historically. It's just that they're all doing it now together. So I think these head to head matchups matter, Bill. And I think how, how they finish is going to matter. Jim, always good. As we get into the postseason, I'm going to touch base again, and uh, we'll, we'll chat all over this, okay? Yeah, sounds good, Bill. Talk to you then. All right, buddy. Talk to you later. There you go. That's our buddy Jim Ozarski, the General Sentinel, joining us for a couple of minutes on the hotline. I know we went a little bit long, but good stuff regarding the MVP voting. I just think it might be Giannis is just such a good player. It's kind of like when uh, the years that, that – LeBron James didn't win. It was because they just didn't want to give it to him again. It's it's kind of that for people that may not vote for Giannis, even though he's having a tremendous season, they may not vote for him just because, because he's been the back-to-back. So they're going to go in a different direction. It's the what the, the, the old title of voter fatigue is. But uh, good stuff from our buddy Jim Ozarski. 
joining us for a couple of minutes on the hotline. By the way, if you're going to go downtown and catch a Bucks game or an Admirals game or anything else for that matter, or just go watch a game or just enjoy some uh, rooftop patio stuff once the weather turns, check out our friends from MKE Brewing. MKE Brewing, Milwaukee Brewing, 9th Street, downtown. Go in and taste some craft brews. They have all kinds of seasonals coming up, so a lot of good stuff going on at MKE Brewing. Stay tuned. we got a lot more of the Bill Michaels Show still to come right after this. Covering Wisconsin sports like a blanket, this is The Bill Michael Show on the Wisconsin Sports Zone Radio Network. The Bill Michael Show Podcast. Listen, rate, subscribe.